This is Imperial Voice, streaming from the palace of His Imperial Majesty, Haile Selassie. City. Last week, our MP, Vera Hobhouse, hosted a Black Lives in Bath online conference with some interesting speakers. We heard from Tony Swaby, from Renee Jacobs, from the lawyer Alex Rakes of Sari, and from our very own Sean Sobers and, and, and Rob Mitchell. Tozin and I listened into it. You're going to hear some of that um, conversation afterwards, but Tozin, what did you make of that event? I think it was powerful. I think it was well-timed. I think it was great to hear so many different voices um, representing quite um, a diverse sort of cross-section of the black community. And um, I say the black community in the way I'm saying it in, uh, in, in sort of quotation marks, because I think Rob goes on to sort of break down um, this monolith um, later on in, in the conversation. And um, so I won't say much more about that. Um, yeah, I think it was, it was timely. I completely agree. I mean, I found it powerful and moving. It's extraordinary how timely this has become. And I, I thought it was remarkable in that small number of speak, speakers to have that diversity of old and young and business people, social care, education, academia. I thought Vera took on a role of listener and a cautious role of constructive ally. And I think... I think it's, um, it was really interesting because um, uh, so that was something that was explored just a little bit, and that was her German background and the way, you know, Germany went on to deal with... Um, you know, it's, it's war crimes uh, with the Jewish nation. And I think there's a lot that, should, that can still possibly be explored in that part of the conversation, which we only really touched on very briefly. Because one of the things that you and I have discussed privately has been the, not just what is wrong, but what can we do to make it better? And I think that is maybe when the time is right can become part of that conversation. How have other countries, nations dealt with the, the history of the atrocities that was part of their, the foundation, the fabric of their history? Well, I agree. I think the German comparison is very interesting and Vera is exactly the right person to make it. I mean, she, she, she did that in our interview with her, didn't she? And there's a sort of rule of online speech, which is that the first person who makes reference to the Nazis loses the argument because it's such a sort of go-to uh, extreme example. But I think in, in the case of unthinking presumptions about the transatlantic slave trade, I do think that uh, Germany and what it did after the war is a, a valid comparator or example. I don't know if you saw, uh, do you read the Bath Chronicle? Uh, someone sent me a couple of letters from the Bath Chronicle this week 
quite shocking. I mean, okay, what, what did it say? You know, speaking up in favour of Edward Colston and criticising Vera for, for, for not insisting that the people who pulled the statue down are prosecuted. Um, protesters should bear in mind that Edward Colston didn't capture the slaves. He just bought them and sold them. And he died before <laughs> slavery was abolished. So his business as a merchant was legal all his life. And there's no point in judging history by modern standards. It's one. And then another letter. That was J.F. Warren of uh, Oldfield Park. And then this Rosemary Cox says, you know, he was a slave trader, but he was a th philanthropist. You know, today's horror at what he and some of his contemporaries did in those days is out of context. Who was it who said, let him who is without sin be the one to cast the first stone? So Rosemary Cox is kind of quoting the words of Jesus to, you know. Well, I mean, clearly, you and I probably disagree with those views. But I actually think it's really important that those views be aired. I think it's much more dangerous when people harbour those views and it's secret, it's kept hidden. I think when people express those views, then you have a reasonable chance of discussing it with them, analysing it with them and helping them to understand why it's not a positive, helpful view to hold in present day. The problem is if people, if views like that go underground, that's where we, I think we have real problems. We need to continue to discuss all points of view and we need to listen to each other. Doesn't mean I have to agree with you, but I need to be able to listen to you without getting offended. I think it's a very important part of the conversation. I think the, I mean, there's urgent work to be done. And I think it's complex and layered and different layers have to be considered in different ways. I think what, I, what I'm sort of picking up in recent weeks is maybe sort of four or five categories. I think you've got people who are essentially people of goodwill who would self-profess as egalitarians. And, you know, some of them are quite cool and hip and very comfortable with vocabulary and dealing with people and some are inept whether through lack of experience and you know will use the wrong words and will inadvertently give offense I and mean, that's one fairly straightforward category who just i think need more exposure and engagement i think we've discussed before there's a, there's a sort of overwhelming culture of what you might call dormant racists people who are sort of oblivious or complacent who can't see why the colson statue is a problem or or can't see uh, embedded structural racism and don't understand why why um, that's so harmful and painful. But I mean, then we do have, I think, you know, out racists who are unapologetic. And I don't think any amount of reasoning with them is going to um, convince them to a, to, to a different narrative. I mean, these are typically people trying to preserve a sort of white male supremacy view of the world who react very badly if they're criticized. And beyond that, undoubtedly, there's a sort of hardcore of, you know, potentially violent extremists who will actively incite racism and hatred of immigrants, refugees and foreigners to, you know, foment division and pursue a quite different narrative, which is, you know, overthrow of present structures and putting in something much more authoritarian and hostile. And I think, I think there's only a certain number of those one can actually be reasonable with. I, I, my, my, um, I, I agree with you because, I mean, for example, I've come across people who they, they have a, uh, a philosophy and no amount of evidence is going to make them change their mind. But 
One of the interesting things I remember listening to um, uh, a rap artist say many, many years ago, and somebody was complaining about the violence in, in his lyrics. And he said, if I didn't put it down, if I didn't write it, if I didn't turn it into song, then I would be out in the streets doing it. So I thought, I thought Vera demonstrated good sort of collective listening. I mean, her personal listening and the way she facilitated, I thought, encouraged a good habit of listening. Not perfect yet, but, you know, getting there. I also thought she spoke powerfully about safe spaces. And I thought she was successful in creating a safe space for some, you know, passionate and moving stories to be shared. And I also think that there needs to be a safe space for would-be allies who... And um, this came from a different conference I was in earlier the same day, a Quaker organised uh, uh, conference about black lives in Britain, where people freely admitted to unworthy feelings, you know, to that sense of slight sort of fear or apprehension if they were alone with a large number of people of a different skin colour, or people who were trying to be helpful but anxious about using the wrong language. And I thought it was a very good point that they also need safe spaces. They need spaces where they can test their language and learn whether the evolving preference for some language is, is, is something they should adopt. But listen, should we, should we go ahead and listen to um, that conversation? Should we, just, should we just play it out? Absolutely. Okay, here we go. Thank you, Matt, and good evening, everybody. I'm so pleased to see you all here, and thank you for coming, and especially a big thank you to our amazing panelists who have agreed to talk this evening. I want to thank our partner organizations, Imperial Voice Radio, Fairfield House, the Black Family Education Trust, Stand Against Racism and Inequality, Bath Against Racism, for all your valuable work here in Bath and also in the last um, couple of weeks for helping us prepare this event. The brutal murder of George Floyd by the police one month ago on the 25th of May struck a deep and painful chord with all of us. Why? Because we recognize that systemic racism and discrimination are real issues even in our city. And we recognize that we have to work to tackle them. Let us be very clear, the only people we can listen to on these issues are those with lived experience of them. They are the experts. As a member of parliament and a campaigner who campaigns for change, it is my job to listen and to seek to understand their concerns and to support change locally and nationally. Tonight we are all here to respectfully listen, to learn and to identify how we can support positive change as individuals and by working together. This conversation is uh, one of a number of uh, things going on throughout our community and I look forward to being part of the bigger conversation and to supporting others. So we have already said we have got seven guests with us this evening. We will hear from all of them in turn and then open up for discussion as Matt has already said. My first guest is Dr. Sean Sobers. He's Associate Professor of Cultural Interdisciplinary Practice at the University of the West of England. He is a photographer and filmmaker, has researched the transatlantic slave trade and Rastafari culture. And he's an active voice for calling for the decolonization of our education system. 
The topic of racism is very emotive and a, a very emotive and painful subject. In order to confront it, we need to be aware of the historical facts, also as they relate to our city's past. Sean, I'm now um, passing over to you. Can you please provide us with a bit of an overview? I'm looking forward to hearing from you. Sean. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Vera, for the invitation to speak. And thank you for all of you that are attending and also fellow panelists as well. Um, I was born and raised in the city of Bath, so this event is hugely important to me. In this short introduction, I want to try and set the scene of the city of Bath in context of its relationship with the African diaspora, race and racism. The essence that I want to communicate that it's possible to have different colliding facts that coexist. So here's some colliding facts that exist about the city of Bath. Well, fact number one, that Bath is a beautiful, world-famous UNESCO World Heritage Site that was built by the Romans and the Georgians. The other fact is that the money that was used to fund the Georgian expansion of the city of Bath was funded by the transatlantic slave trade, particularly at the time when Bristol was the country's most profitable slaving port. Another pair of facts that I want to present. After the Second World War, Britain invited West Indians over to, to help build back up the country and the economy and many West Indian settlers came to Bath and were warmly welcomed. The other colliding fact is that those same West Indian islands were colonized by Britain and other European countries, and there were huge economic disparities between the white, rich European colonizers and the largely poor black citizens who were themselves descendants of those same enslaved Africans. When those same people were invited over to Britain after the war, those same structural, social, economic divides existed and became entrenched. Those same divides exist in the city today. So you can see the continuity from the transatlantic slave trade through colonization and the Commonwealth, and then what we now know is the Windrush era. When they came here, those same disparities and divides came through time and they still exist in the city today. The final pair of facts that I want to present is that Bath can be a lovely place to live where different communities and ethnicities and classes can coexist at relative ease. The other fact is that, however, racism does exist in the city of Bath. And when incidents of racial prejudice gets highlighted, reported and spoken about, there can be a tendency for it to be disbelieved, downplayed, explained away as something else and swept under the carpet. So in short, this false sense of security of the positive facts about Bath can override the lived experiences of the victims of racial abuse when it becomes an issue. So in this evening's event, we're going to hear about people's lived experience of racism whilst living here. Now, all of the black people on this panel, I'm sure, as well as in the audience, will have been told at some point in our lives, if you don't like it here, why don't you leave? The fact is that racism exists everywhere and we have to face up to the fact that it exists here. So rather than anyone wondering why people don't just leave, 
we have to face up to the reality and deal with the problem of racism so people don't feel like they should have to leave. So growing up here, I experienced racism at school, in shops, in my first places of work in the city, from the police, and I was also racially attacked, completely unprovoked and thrown through a window. But yet I still love it here, and I have a huge amount of fun here and have made friends for life. These colliding facts do exist. So I just want to see the city do better when challenges arise of how to deal with racism and not pretend that everything on the surface is fine. We know that there are deep structural, ethnic and class divides in the city's population and that needs to be addressed. So this event tonight is part of that conversation. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Sean. We will now hear from Tony Swarby, a senior social worker who currently works with an adult social care and from an adult safeguarding background. So Tony, very good to see you. Thank you for coming. Oh, uh, thank you, Vera. Let's hear from you. Um, so like Sean, I've also um, grown up in Bath and, you know, I completely agree. You know, Bath is a beautiful city, you know, as time has gone on, it has become more um, diversified and actually, you know, there are, you see now as more students come into the city, there is a more, I'd say, um, as I said, a diverse population that is starting to grow in Bath. However, you know, like Sean, I've also, you know, experienced instances of discrimination and racism. You know, I think, you know, my early experiences at senior school, for example, I remember um, we were studying Florence Nightingale, the Crimea War, etc. And I remember specifically asking my teacher at the time, you know, why are we not learning about Mary Seacole? She's somebody else who has done much more than Florence Nightingale. She actually used her own funds to support soldiers who Florence Nightingale would not engage with, you know, and I remember being, you know, told off essentially and asked to leave the classroom. Um, you know, and I felt that actually, why am I not able to bring set? Why are we not looking at this? Why are we not looking at other, you know, parts of black history that don't involve slavery? Because it's that whole, and I remember we are speaking about slavery and it being around every single, me being the only black child or black girl in the classroom, every eye on me like saying, oh, and actually there's a lot more to black history than just slavery. We know about the Egyptians. We know about Marcus Garvey. We know about Malcolm X. We know there's so Steve Biko, Nelson Mandela. There's a range, there's so many people in history who are black people that have contributed to society, but instead the emphasis and the onus is always on slavery and that shouldn't be the case. I mean, in the case of my history teacher, he did speak to me after the lesson to say, well, this is not in the curriculum. I said, well, it should be. Maybe if I was old, I would go around another way of challenging, but at that time, that was how I you know, knew how to do it. The same when I did the access course, I asked, yes, I love reading about D.H. Lawrence and Sylvia Plath and all of those people, however, why are we not also taking into consideration Benjamin Zephaniah? Those are also black literature heroes in my eyes who have contributed so much wealth and knowledge to our society that why is neighbor look? Those types of things where again, need to be taken into consideration and actually input into our education system 
all the way up through to up until access course level and beyond. Those are the types of things that we need to be considering from my point of view. And I mean, as an adult social worker, yes, I work in adult social um, services. And again, even despite having that profession around me, I have still sensed that I have, and I have been discriminated against. And that started right at the early part of my career in the NHS, whereby I was overlooked um, career progression in favour of somebody who'd only been in the team a year. And I swore to myself that day that when I next put my foot back in that RUH, I will be a qualified social worker. And as it happened, I was, and I met the same person who had chosen to overlook me for career progression. And I actually felt like high-fiving myself, quite honestly, because I thought, well, yes, I wasn't good enough to progress for whatever reason, how to go beyond me, he's been here less. And it's those covert acts of racism that is ingrained within Bath. It's not only the fact that there is systemic racism and that is everywhere, but the, the irony is Bath is a beautiful place which is entrenched in, as I would say, covert racism, whether that is being followed around in shops, whether that is being look at people holding onto their bags as you pass them. Those acts then impact on any particularly younger people growing up, young black women, men, etc. That impacts on their self-confidence, their self-esteem, and then that in turn creates a whole range of problems, you know, developing into whether it be mental health services, where again, the amount of disproportionate young black males who are over-medicated and actually what work is Avon and Wiltshire Partnership doing to ensure that they too are meeting their duties under the Equalities Act 2010, along with other organisations in Bath, Virgin Care being one of them. And I don't like to obviously name drop, but my experience there actually resulted in me again being discriminated against over an incident. On top of that, um, the police record, which was apparently the proportionate response because actually myself and another black colleague was um, led to believe that we'd been somehow in line with men hiding in a bush and threatening staff on site. Now there are cameras around there which incidentally were not working so in my mind already the police have been called, we're being put in line with men who are menacing and again that racial profiling the whole of the unconscious bias, those are things that directly constitute and actually continue to fuel covert racism. And I think that's something that in Bath, as I say, is, you know, is a, is a massive thing that needs to be looked at, not only for myself as a 39-year-old woman, but my daughter coming up behind me and every other person behind us who was coming up and following that path. So it's addressing these issues the here and now, which in turn will ensure and enlighten those people who don't think that there is an issue of race in Bath. Because I can assure you, you know, it is here, it is ingrained, we need to acknowledge it. And as I was saying to Olivia yesterday, I liken it to a wound that needs to be cleaned out. And at that point of it being cleaned out, it can be healed and then supported and we build those stones and pave that way forward. Well, thank you so much, Tony, for um, sharing your thoughts and your experiences. I, I think you're absolutely right. It's the unconscious bias that, that is so insidious, that sort of sits there, and we, we need to listen very carefully what that feels like for the people who are living through this on a, on a daily basis. So thank you again so much, Tony, for, for, for sharing your, your, your views and your, your experience. Um, and what
And uh, I'm sure we will all come back uh, to you with questions. I'm now going to hand over to um, Renee Jacobs, founder of the Black in Bath Network, who works as a project manager at a software company in Bath. And she's interested in supporting black and ethnic minority people in the workplace, particularly in the technology and creative jobs, where she is, uh, has spent most of her career before moving to Bath and starting a family. Renee lived in London for 10 years. Thank you so much, Renee, and we are looking forward to hearing from you now. Hello, thank you. Thank you, thank you, Mira. Um, yes, yeah, so I moved to Bath from London um, and the reason for moving was a lot of the things um, that have already been poured out. It's a beautiful city. Um, there's so much to offer in terms of culture and heritage. The schools are some of the best in the country. Um, and it's got really, this is for me as a person that loves working, it's got really good transport links back to London. And I think that is why Bath and the Southwest are seeing more and more people moving to the area. But in moving from a very diverse city like London, you notice the contrast is stark. In my workplace, I am the only black person and there are two or three other people from ethnic minorities. Actually, in terms of the tech sector, our diversity is really good. <laughs> so I can't complain about that. But even so, with that good level of diversity, um, you still experience, and I still experience, racism in the workplace. It is not common um, that people will come out and say something racist, really overt and um, violent to your face. It is the unconscious racism, the bias that is built into the systems, that is built into our culture as a country that comes out in the workplace. Um, so it's, it kind of makes you feel when things happen that are um, people call microaggressions, which is generally what you would face in the workplace. It, it really erodes away your confidence in your job, your confidence in the people that you work with and your confidence that um, if anything bigger did happen, that people would believe you. So um, I have an example, which is um, I was talking to my uh, someone senior in our company about the Windrush scandal at the time when it all was in the news. And he asked if anyone in my family had been affected because my parents and grandparents came over from the Caribbean. And I said, actually, yes. Um, my uncle is very worried that he's going to be deported. And somebody nearby listening said, oh, well, if he hadn't committed a crime. And I didn't know what to say. So suddenly now I'm thinking, okay, you think that, or you've just made an assumption about my uncle, you know nothing about him. You've assumed he's committed some kind of crime. Um, he may or may not have, that's not really the point. But also now you think that all black people commit crimes and there's so cultural misunderstanding there of how as a black person you're more likely to be convicted of a crime, you're more likely to be pursued for things that um, non-black people would not be pursued in the courts. So the system is already built up for you to be convicted of a crime and then you're going to be deported for it, potentially, to a country that you've never been to. And it made me so 
I was so taken aback. I, I don't think I even spoke. I think I just went, I looked at her and then just walked off because I didn't know what to say. Now I'm in a situation where if something happens in the workplace and I experience racism, how do I talk to her about it? You can't, what can I say to her? As from my feeling now, she's a lovely person and we get on really well. And that's the point. She's lovely. She's really nice. We can talk about shopping and her husband and go for coffees and it's all really nice and fine. But somewhere underneath the surface is this layer of, I believe that black people are more likely to be criminals or that um, if you are deported because of the windrush thing, actually somehow you deserve that. Um, and it's really difficult. And so it kind of pervades in your work. If I'm going for a promotion, if she's involved, how is that going to affect it? You know what I mean? It's all of these things. And that one incident by itself was kind of upset me because it's really personal. And I was really upset because I was upset and worried about my uncle. But there are other things that are just small and they just kind of chip away. People describe it as death by a thousand cuts. And it's like that. It just slowly chips away at your ability to feel confident and comfortable that you are going to be treated fairly and equitably in your life. Um, and then on top of that, then there is what Sean said, where all the systems that are in place um, to do with recruitment, retention, promotion, it's all of that is just it's in there, it's seeped in and it's kind of poisoning the whole system. And so to fix it, we kind of have to look at the system as a whole. And there's something else I wanted to talk about really briefly, because I know we're short on time. I've also, so as part of my work in the network, I've been reaching out to black people in the community and I've spoken to some university students um, because Bath University is a huge university for the country and it's really prestigious and it upsets me and I was really upset to hear that students at university, so these are like 18, 19, 20 year olds, are experiencing similar things to what I experienced in the workplace as a woman in her 30s where um, reports of racism are not believed or they're downplayed um, the thing that Tony mentioned where you feel self-conscious if um, people are talking about slavery because you're the only black person in the room or if your lecturer for some reason decides that they're going to say the n-word and then all eyes on the room are on you as the only black person and these are experiences that students at university have um, and with everything in the news about George Floyd and the murder I don't want to leave you all feeling depressed about where I work because you can look it up easily and I don't want that to happen but I was really happy because I made several posts on LinkedIn and social media saying I'm really struggling with this for my mental health. And I also posted um, a note to the whole workplace talking about it and how it affects me and why it's important. And our CEO reached out to me and said, can we have a call? It's Corona. Um, are you okay? And we had a really long conversation about it. And I feel like we made steps to, to maybe rectifying some of the things. But then I was really upset to hear that um, some students in university are not feeling supported in the same way. And these, this murder being in the news, the, the Black Lives Matter being at the forefront, it's a lot of mental pressure. Um, and we need to make sure that we're supporting. If you are an employer, you need to make sure you're supporting your black employees. If you are a university lecturer or member of staff, 
you need to make sure that you're supporting your students. If you're a teacher, you need to make sure you're supporting your students because these times are really heavy on people's mental health. And um, I'm happy that my employer did ask if I was okay and they asked if there was anything that they could do. Um, and that made me feel, you know, pretty good. Um, but I think we need to make sure that, you know, everyone's doing that. That's a, you know, it's an easy change to ask somebody if they're okay, isn't it? That's just common human decency. Um, which is all that we're asking for. Um, so yeah, I think there's a lot. Bath is a great place. I really like it here. I have a lot of friends. I have no intention of leaving. I have a child who I hope will go to school here. But I also hope that institutions, employers and individuals look deep into themselves under the surface and work out where those little, just those little horrible bits are, those little bits that aren't right and work out how to fix them because that's what we need to do to make the interior of Bath, our internal life, as beautiful as the exterior and all the buildings and everything. You're listening to Imperial Voice. This is a special double-length episode of In Our City. Tozin and I are listening to and discussing a special Black Lives in Bath discussion hosted by our MP, Vera Hophaus. Thank you. Um, Rene, that was very powerful and I think I like that, you know, make the interior of our city as beautiful as um, the exterior and yeah, some people are scared to look a little bit into the interior and I think that that's why it's quite difficult. I think it's painful and people don't really want to get into that interior to to come and, uh, and, 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 and talk what is, you know, still not right. Um, and so it, it is this whole discussion and this conversation has to be about how how to get that interior right. And on, along the way, you know, it might be painful, but we can't fix it unless we really get to the bottom of it. Um, and, uh, you know, thank you for sharing all of what you, you've lived. Um, uh, and uh, I'm sure there's so many similar stories out there that uh, uh, we, we, we need to listen to. We are now coming to two panelists um, who work with local organizations. First, Rob Mitchell, a media producer and writer who has produced creative content for broadcast, corporate commun uh, community education and learning since 1993. He is the co-founder of Firstborn Creatives with Sean Sobers, and he works for the Black Families Education Support Group in Bath as a supplementary school coordinator and mentor. So, Rob, I know that you will be bringing the voices of local young people into the room. Let's hear more from you, Rob. Thank you. Uh, thanks, Vera. Thanks also for everybody who's spoken already and um, everyone who's joined us. Um, it's hard to know where to begin because it, it's so pervasive and such a huge subject. It's hard to fit it all in. But I've been in Bath for one year as the supplementary school, just over that, supplementary school coordinator at Black Families. Um, and I mean, throughout this talk, forgive me, as we all will be doing, is using very crude terms like black and white. Sometimes we're gonna qualify those terms, but let me just say, even though I use it and we all use it, they are crude terms which can, are not particularly accurate, but when they need qualifying, I'll do so, but forgive me for using them. I just wanna say that little note. Um, I also wanna say um, probably the most shocking thing about the Black Lives Matter response to the Black Lives Matter at the moment, I think the most shocking thing for black people as much as George Floyd's death was shocking and that snuff movie on the, thing on the screen was really shocking, I think probably the most shocking thing at the moment is the response from white people and the intensity of that response and the scale of that response because 
this is something that I think anyone who's either black or been working in the field of racial equality has been talking about for decades. So it's like, well, the big question is like, what, what's going to change now? So that's where we are at right now in the second of this conversation. I think Tony used the term covert racism. I kind of question, I'm not questioning that. I think it's there, but I'd go even further and say it's ingrained. It's so deeply ingrained that people don't, people won't, if you say to someone that's racist, they'll get um, understandably defensive because in their mind it's not. Racism is what the Ku Klux Klan does. But when you look at it very deeply, that so-called white supremacy is so deeply embedded into the culture, the European culture we live in and the global culture we live in that it's, it's always there. I've lived in Bristol for 30 years. I've worked with Sean, as you said, um, Firstborn, uh, as which is a media production education company for 20 years. And our first film, which has just become really relevant, is a film we did about when Bristol as a city was looking at its connection to transatlantic slavery for the first time. And that was 20 years ago. And this, it was, I've just put it out on social media that it was absolutely shocking the response that's come back oh my god oh my god it's like hang on this film's 20 years old we were trying to make this film 20 years ago trying to make you aware of this point 20 years ago now obviously bath has a whole story as well i mean having been new to bath having walked down portney drive for example that or portney um that big road on the way to uh, uh, uh the the holborn is like wow there's a a lot of money has gone into this the georgian city that's all transatlantic slavery related um the Bath also has some really interesting cultural jewels as an outsider from looking at the Black Caribbean community. There's the Fairfield House connection and the connection to Rasta there. There's Bemska. Um, there's a Rainbow Steel Pan, which is a hidden gem. Um, and there's a supplementary school which I work for, thanks to the likes of the community and Jason Pegg, the manager and the trustees, people who kept it alive, just kept it alive because they believed in it, not because it's well resourced. Black Families Education Support Group was set up in the 80s alongside Bemska and it's it was a kind of community response which was reflected around the country certainly during the 60s and 70s a person called Bernard Coward wrote a pamphlet called um, how the uh, West Indian child is made education subnormal by the British education system now basically he called it out but what was happening when Caribbean parents um, Sean talked about the windrush factors it were when Caribbean children were being brought here from Jamaica Barbados where they came from um, whether cultural differences were just outright straight racism, when they were being assessed, on whatever basis they were being assessed, um, they were being put into education subnormal schools, schools for the education subnormal, whole generations of people. Those who weren't even put in those schools, the attitudes that went, that got them in those schools was what would be, they were being met with in mainstream schools. So that was the, that underlying premise is what led to the community activism around supporting um, the supplementary school movement, which had a much more, uh, Afrocentric identities and looking uh, 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 and looking much more about identity, etc. Um, Steve McQueen, the maker of Twelve Years a Slave, is actually looking for people at the moment. Well, he's an executive producer on a film. They were looking at the education subnormal. They mentioned a school in Bath called Summerfield School. So they're currently right this second looking for anybody who was put into that school or was a part of that school in Bath. Education subnormal. So Black Families Education Support Group, as well as working on things like the supplementary school where we do identity. Or, or, or skills and building resilience and confidence um, also works directly with um, young people in school education system on a one-to-one -one basis doing mentoring once again building resilience and also we work with families because um, um, black children find themselves more likely to be excluded um, here again I'll start looking at the black white thing now well, sometimes we do have to qualify because we talk about BAME BME black now 
I, my background is African Caribbean, which means transported my history. Slavery is a part of my history, as it were. Um, but in school, for example, um, a Hindu child has completely different outcomes to an African Caribbean child. Um, in Bristol, uh, the worst performers, if you, if you like, when you start breaking it down, um, are black Caribbean, mixed black Caribbean and white British as opposed to white other. So when you start looking at the more granular way, when one starts looking at the more granular way, it things, all sorts of interesting things come up. And that's why black and white is crude, but we understand why we use it. The issues we thought we need to look at, mixed race in Bath is one of them. Um, the special case that that, that provides, does anyone acknowledge the unique nature of that, of that place? Name calling and bullying happens all the time. How do we build a resilience around that? And how do we understand the impact that, um, like Renee said, the mental health impact that, and that's constant, 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 constant impact does that have? One of the students said acknowledgement. The first thing, and this is what I guess this whole movement, the post BLM, post Colston, post George Floyd time is about, is there's been a majorly significant acknowledgement. We're still quite a way away because there's still a lot of story to tell. There's a lot of unpicking to, there's a lot of pain to be had, etc. Lots of uncomfortable conversations to be had. But the acknowledgement, that's the beginning of a very, like I said, the scale and the size and the difference acknowledgement under COVID, under lockdown have been very different. We've not seen that before. Um, and um, black, the most important thing was education and black history, role models. And most importantly, it's not just about the slave trade. What about Africa before slavery, etc.? There's lots of willingness in schools. Um, one of the pupils talked about the fact that she'd taken some work in about Bessie Coleman, first African-American aviator in 1920s, 1930s, I think it was. And that was the result of her own independent education, her family support. But the teacher had never come across a Bessie Coleman before. And teachers are now more, more willing to take on resources. But the, the, what they did in that case was actually take that year eight student's work, an example, and they put that onto the year nine curriculum. And that did something which I think students hadn't other experienced before, which is actually they felt they were being listened to. That was the other thing that was deemed to be really important. I could go on for another year, but I'm going to stop right there. Thank you very much, Rob. You're all very good. You're speaking in, 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 in the precise um, space of time and uh, giving, giving some of our audience um, uh, an opportunity to ask questions. I, I think there's so much that you say that young people are still facing um, in our schools um, and, and, and where um, you know, we have predominantly, well, I'm now using that crude word, white communities. Um, uh, uh, you know, we, we often don't realize that in, in some year, group, year groups, and I was supporting a, a, a family with um, Black Caribbean history uh, and, and, and their children in the school, and the head teacher there, very understanding, said, you know, she's the only person who doesn't look like everybody else. And you know what that actually means, everybody else doesn't quite realize. And, 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 and these sort of things are just, you know, the issues that we need to understand and hear and hear again from the lived experiences. Um, and uh, so, yes, I, I, I'm so pleased that you all are, are you know, very, very, open and honest about your experiences. Um, thank you so much, Rob, for sharing what, you know, what, what uh, you know and uh, what you um, have learned over so many years and, sh and sharing um, that with us. So our next uh, speaker is Alex Rakes. He is an MBE, Honorary Doctor of Law, Strategic Director of SARI, Stand Against Racism and Inequality. Alex, please tell us a little bit about SARI and the sort of things that you are seeing 
right now. Over to you. Thank you very much. And yeah, really um, moving to hear what everyone is saying. Um, so firstly, thank you, Rob, for saying that black and white is not a binary issue. Um, I'm mixed race myself, um, half um, Iranian Kurdish, came out very light. My brother came out very dark. Um, my brother, def my dad definitely was black and he faced everything that you can think of, including, um, you know, being arrested wrongfully, swimming the Southampton Channel with police following him a lot. So we went through a lot as a family, but I don't have the lived experience of being in um, a black skin, but I certainly know what it's like to be in a family. And we were, uh, that was um, a BME family in the middle of a rural area, um, really tough area, and racist abuse was an everyday, pretty much an all day experience for my family, which is why I joined Sari 29 years ago. Um, I didn't know such a job could exist. In fact, racism was never talked about in my school. There was only two of us in the school anyway from Bain families. Um, so uh, yeah, thanks Rob, because <laughs> it isn't binary. Um, there's, uh, you know, in terms of lived experience as well. So Sari, we are your local um, anti-racism hate crime charity. Um, we started Life Out 29 years ago as a racial harassment project um, under our founder director, Patuk Pandya, who sadly passed away six years ago. Anyone who knew him knew he was a, a force that was larger than life. And Sari all set up to deal with racial harassment and attacks on the front line um, and to deal with every single case that came our way in the best way we could with the people who were facing that abuse in the driving seat. And we've held true to that ever since. Um, we are now a charity that deals with all forms of hate crime but we're stand against racism and inequality because we want racism to stay in the title. And we're still very much a black minority ethnic led charity collaborating with other specialist charities for the other types of hate crime. We're now at the point where we have 20 staff um, with the biggest hate crime, racial harassment charity in the UK, not very big, but that's because there's hardly any of, of us. And we're now at a point where we deal with about 800 referrals a year, opening 500 cases a year, and about um, 10, just under 10% of those are in Baines, Bath and North East Somerset across. There isn't one bit of Baines that hasn't had an incident or a case, I'll be honest. Um, or if there is, I'll be surprised because we've had pretty much every village and every um, community have a case of racial harassment or hate crime from the city. Um, in terms of children, young people, um, we just work with um, black families. So Bob's char uh, charity, um, with Off the Record, with the local authority, um, with the University of Bath, we worked jointly just a, just a year ago on surveying children, young people in schools across Spain to find out their experience of hate crime, including racism. And the reason we did that is we were tired of hearing people say we don't have a problem here. There's no evidence. What are you talking about? This is despite us having cases such as the young African lad um, who was, you know, tied up and beaten and put through a mock slave auction not very long ago, which was a case that we supported. Um, we were absolutely astounded. We got over 1,700 responses, which is, I think, almost 10% of the secondary school community came filled in that survey. And of that 1,700 plus young people that filled it in, I'm glad to say, you know, 30% filled it in and hadn't suffered. You know, that, that's, that's positive because people filled it in and wanted to contribute who hadn't. But 70% had. 70% had had hate crime, of which many um, were racism. Not all, but many. And of those, 10% um, were physical attacks, so more serious. And we had some very serious um, incidents reported and some very serious impacts. On a plus side, 
because there's some good stuff in that report apart from the fact that it did say a lot of people were suffering and it did tell us there was a big issue on the plus side was where people had reported which very not very many did not very many did but those who reported mostly had a good experience by reporting it so and a lot of people don't realize that so that's a positive so for Sarah, you asked me to say what's going on. Well, last week we had 24 new referrals, just to give you some example, some idea. Uh, that's like nearly, well, that's like five a day, um, new referrals coming in. Um, we've seen things getting a lot more serious recently. We're seeing more far right stuff coming in. Um, we've just, just one of the ones that I feel I should share with you because it's so relevant to George Floyd is um, a local black guy who is a strong, confident manager in a facilities company working for a large logistics company who's looked up to because most of the black minority ethnic staff in his huge organization are on the lower levels, if you like. And so he's looked up to as, as a guy that's made it. He's, he's, a, he's a manager and he has to travel all over the southwest for his work. And he was in a Plymouth um, depot and a site manager there said to him, why are you still breathing? Um, he then proceeded to tell me about four or five other incidents, including another one where he was kneeling down, this is all recently, kneeling down to sort something out. And a guy came up behind him and in a South, uh, Southern States of American drawl said, what they got you doing now, boy? And he had another incident where he was repairing um, the toilets and he was again kneeling down and a guy came up behind him and said, you're facing the wrong way for Mecca, mate. And this is just recent. And this is a strong guy who is well known in his community who coming to Surrey was a big deal. He had to ask a lot of friends before he came to us. And he came to us because he said, it's really got to me. I can't believe it, but it's really got to me. And what was worse for him was the guy that said, I can't, uh, why are you still breathing? It's still working. It's not been suspended. Um, so we're dealing with that right now. Um, and that's recent. I've got another very recent one just this month, literally two weeks ago, which is a, a single mum with four dual heritage children aged four weeks, one years old, seven years old and 12 years old. She's had the N-word scrawled all over her door and bricks put through her windows on two occasions in the last few weeks. She is scared out of her wits. She lives in a block of flats. She's very depressed. She wants to move. She doesn't feel safe. Um, so those are just some of the examples of what, and every one of those 24 referrals I've reeled off to you is another serious case with another family whose lives are being destroyed from not covert, over, over racism. Those are overt cases, because as you've heard from several of our um, panelists very eloquently, covert is a massive issue. For a lot of people, it's not that upfront stuff they're getting, but most recently it is upfront. We have had our senior political black leaders attacked. We've had a gravestone in Bristol, um, you know, a, a historic grave of a young slave uh, boy. Um, brutally damaged with a threat to say there's going to be more coming if you don't put Colston back. We've had other political leaders calling me who said they've got councillors being overtly racist and they don't know what to do with them. So this is over, never mind covert. But the covert, I could carry on for a long, long time. There's not many people in background, not many different, if I say people have come from every background, every walk of life, every class with racism to tell and often I get a phone call from someone else I know from a senior role who says and I think oh no not you as well because there's not many of my friends in different um, organizations even at senior levels who haven't turned to me at some point but them or their children and that's the reality that's out there but I didn't want to leave you all with um, 
a depressing story because you know what there is a lot of good and I think Bob's pointed out and the reason I think we're getting a really a resurgence of the very small um, I like to call them cockroaches of society you know um, who are coming out to do some of these unpleasant things um, the reason is because they're feeling very threatened why because if you look at the 10,000 people that marched um, for Black Lives Matter in Bristol a huge number were white white British. And I think we've got a great big uprising of support coming in from many backgrounds. And I think that is very threatening to the few people that don't agree with race equality being important. So there's a positive. I'll end with um, what can you do? Loads, loads, all of you, everybody be vigilant, um, look out, be witnesses. We have laws, exercise them, come forward. If you've got someone else you know who needs support with coming forward, support them to come forward. Please don't be passive. Please don't just put up with that incident that you're seeing. University of Bath students, we want them to come forward. They've not been coming forward. So anything we can do to encourage them to come forward. One of Sari's staff last week, African Caribbean guy coming out of a shop, car slowed down, three white guys leant out the window. White lives matter, they yelled at him. And he wasn't going to report it. And I said to him, you've got to. You've got to, we've got, you know, we've got to speak, you know, we've got to practice as we preach. So um, the last point I guess I'll make is there is change happening. There is change happening whether people like it or not. And as um, Martin Luther King said, change does not roll in on the wheels of inevitab inevitability. It doesn't. It comes through continuous struggle. So let's, all, let's keep on with that continuous struggle to ensure we do, do get the change we want to see. Thank you. Thank you, Alex. I think you're you're right when you're saying you know just don't put up with it uh, only because you've built up some sort of thick skin or resilience. It's just not good enough. We need to really call it out wherever we we notice it. And I have to say, um, the amount of funny letters uh, I get from people now because I stood up uh, for um, the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, you know, people come and write to me very unpleasant. Uh, letters and yes, I, I think there's there is change afoot, but there is still a very nasty residual uh, uh, leftover. And how big that is, I, I honestly don't know. I think you're absolutely right. It seems to be covert, and it comes out in in these moments. And and we just have to stand together, uh, and 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 really be completely zero tolerant about this. I think we have got a long way to go. Uh, uh, but but I have to say I. I was really surprised by the virulence, or you know, the the, the violence of some of, of the responses that I get as an MP only uh, because I want to listen, I, I want to hear what you have to say, I, and that was shocking. I have to say, it, it, it's not masses, but it's enough people to really, really worry me. So uh, you know, we are certainly not through with any of this, and uh, we are at the very, very beginning. So thank you for all of you for um, for telling me, uh, us all, um, you know, just, you know, starting this discussion, what it feels like, what lived experience is like. Bringing into the panel uh, Lloyd. Uh, Lloyd, um, notice, um, is going to open this up. Um, Lloyd is a professional actor, director and voice teacher. He's currently director of One Good Friday theatrical production to be hopefully performed next year in Bath Parade's Garden. Uh, on April the 2nd and for that alone it's worth it hopefully uh, you know we are going to open up uh, uh, you know the way that we can enjoy theatre again so Lloyd over to you what what are your views of what you've heard so far? Well first of all I just want to say thank you to everyone that's spoken so far so eloquently 
on this really emotive issue. And for me as a black man, I'm in a sense of a quandary because it's for the first time, I guess, even from the lockdown, that I feel that my life is slightly less terrible as, as, as it would be before. You know, I'm, I'm struggling when I pass a group of white guys, for example, to see if there's going to be any sort of abuse happening. Um, my children are at this time. And it's been a really difficult period in our lives. And my, my question really is, where do we go from here? What constructive systems can be constructed to, to address racism in the here and now? I mean, my industry is one there. Uh, when I was in the Royal Shakespeare Company, Adrian Noble, the artistic director, said, well, I was talking about another issue, but related to race. He was just saying, well, he gets letters from white people saying that black people shouldn't even be allowed to perform Shakespeare. So I agree with Rob Mitchell, it is that ingrained that we need to have some really deep, uh, uh, deep conversations about what can be done. And that is my question, what really can be done so that I can feel and my children can feel safe on the streets. You're listening to Imperial Voice. This is a special double-length episode of In Our City. Tozin and I are listening to and discussing a special Black Lives in Bath discussion hosted by our MP, Vera Hophaus. Thank you for, for, for putting this question out there. I also want to bring in Chris um, now to our uh, debate. Chris Barker is able to join us and has joined us. And hello, you're so welcome. Uh, you're one of uh, the community elders. Chris, um, you came to the UK from Barbados when you were 17 and spent your working life in London before uh, you came to Bath and made this, made this your home. What, 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 do you, what are your thoughts um, listening to all of this? Uh, yes, 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 we can hear you. Wonderful. Thank you. Uh, oh, good evening, uh, Farnell. Um, good evening. Um, good evening to you all. Yeah, I, um, I came from Barbados when I was um, 17 years old. I, I resolved in, in Brixton, London. Um, I lived in Brixton for um, over 50 years. And I came down, my daughter came down here for a holiday and um, she liked it. And um, Joe and I retired. I decided to follow her because then, uh, we, I want to be there to my grandchildren and my daughter. And I, f I found a Bath, a wonderful city. I find the people here, especially the West Indians, and everybody here to me are wonderful. Very nice to me. You know, I have, this is eight years now I'm living here. And I worked for London Transport from. 35 years on the buses on the bus driver and um i enjoyed it i had um i joined uh, the transport and general workers union i was also one of um, the, the representatives for the blacks at the victoria bus garage and um i would say that we we were all living in a bubble together you know, like a bubble together. I haven't seen it. 
there might be racism, but we haven't seen any racism in, in my shed where I were. But no doubt there were be because of some of our uh, youngsters wanted to go as the inspector and they'd be turned down for no reason at all where you get the white guys got promotion. Yeah. I never put in for, um, for promotion because of what I see what's going on with inspectors. Once you join as an inspector, you have to be on the management side. And because of me, um, I like my sport because we play cricket. And I couldn't be waiting on evening when the bus come in and you're running about four or five minutes early and I'm outside the door with a pencil ticking you off and then you have to go and see the governor. And then few weeks, a couple of days later, the same guy you book to lose a job, you're playing cricket with him. So I didn't put in for promotion. But um, I had a wonderful time uh, as, as a bus driver with my wife. We had two, 350 men working and women working together. And we all worked together in unity. You know, it did, it did work in unity. And um, I enjoyed it. We had parties together. We went cricket together. We even come down here to Bath to play against university. We give a good whoop in here. And we also went as far as Woodster playing the white in, in Woodster, and they looked after us. Yeah. Very well, they looked after us. I mean, we, we stayed there sometimes till um, the morning, you know, and we had a, a great time. But um, I, I can't say that there's not racism, but I haven't had any racism to me. I, um, I have five children, four um, in London, uh, from my first marriage, my first wife died, and I'm, I remarried again. I have one mixed um, race daughter, and we sit down, we see that that is what we're talking about education. You have to sit down and talk to your children. My daughter went to school at Oxford University. We sit down before and we, we let her know that she is a mixed race. She, she asked me, what is mixed race? And I told her my, that mixed race is one white and one black mixed together. And that's how you get a mixed race. And she knew what she were. She never yet come home once and tell me that somebody tell her something dirty out of the way. Not once. She's 43 years, 47 years old now. And she have never complained to me about her color. I come home several days from work and I would see all different colors in, inside of my home. Sometimes the sleepover, she goes to other people, uh, white and black kids, and, and sleep over. So I have never seen anything that happened within that. You know, if I tell you something like that, I will be telling you a lie. My other kids, which is uh, my other four black kids, 
They have never told me anything about this, but we sit down and we talk to them. And you have to educate your children about where they come from and who they are. You know, I, I mean, I had more racism in London with the Africans than I had with my son. For instance, I was, after I came off the buses, I was driving taxi one day and I came to a, a road in Brixton, it was blocked. And I said to this African man, could you move back six feet? And he said, who are you talking to, nigger? He says, you're an African, um, you, you're, you're a slave. You are a slave, so who do you think you're talking to? And I said, oh yes, I know that I'm a slave, but I'm a reconditioned one. Look at your face, like the tracks on, on the railway. Look at my face, and you see how smooth it is. A white lady came and she said, yes, brother, you tell him. You were here first. Thank you. Thank you, Chris. Um, we, we, um, you know, you've given us a, a very good insight about your family life. And uh, I mean, so many things that probably people want to comment on and, and say, well, yes, uh, uh, that's my experience too. Or this is, uh, 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 you know, things that we need to talk about. So thank you so much. Can we sort of maybe have uh, some, some of our panelists uh, coming into this conversation? Who wants to, to start us off here? Yes, Sean. Like just um, thanks. Uh, yeah, fantastic to hear everybody's experiences and views. Um, so thank you. Um, just wanted to respond to Lloyd's question, really, because um, I absolutely hear him in terms of that 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 sense of kind of vulnerability that's, that we're feeling now, exhaustion. You know, particularly in that week when Colston came down, it was a very exhausting, emotionally roller coaster of a week. And that sense of what now? Are we safe? What's going to happen next? So I definitely relate to that. Um, and then you you ask the question, what can be done now, and what next? And I think that absolutely is that that is the prime question: what next? And for me, the question of how will racism be tackled? and challenged, etc. For me, that question, I have to say, has to go to our white allies, as they're now known. Because as black people, we've been shouting about this, challenging this, fighting this for decades, centuries, hundreds of years. But still, change hasn't happened. So now we're getting a change in the discourse. That it's not enough to be not racist people have to be anti-racist. People have to call it out. It's not enough to not be racist yourself that we're asking, you know, that the challenge is now to our, our white allies, as they're known. Um, but it's not only white people, it's all sections of society, actually. It's not, it's not just white people, but it's about not enough to be not racist. We have to be anti-racist and actually call it out. Um, but as I say, I would put that also question to, uh, to you know, non-black members of the community because a lot of us has been called out for years. But I think that challenges to everybody because as Chris has also just said, that is you do get disparities within communities. Um, you do get black people that don't call it out um, as well. So I think that anti-racist challenge actually goes out to everybody and not, not just the white allies, but I think particularly 
uh, you know, white members of the community have to think about what it means to be anti-racist as well. I really want to know what you think I can do, what, what you think would be helpful for you from me as a white ally, if, we, if I may say this. I mean, I think you're, you're right. I mean, I've been saying quite provocatively that under lockdown, everybody's black now because suddenly there's this infinitesimal sense of walking the street, doing what you thought was nothing wrong, quite innocently going to the park and you might get stopped by the police. I mean, that's <laughs> nothing like four five centuries of, of, of structural, economic and cultural degradation. But however, it's just an infinitesimal sense of the idea that you are, you have been criminalised through no fault of your own. You have been criminalised by the state. Sean talked about asking white allies about it. I think that's definitely one part of it. One of the things that also points me to is also, I think what black people, and I'm using the term, <laughs> have to do for ourselves. And I think as well as education, that's important. And that's, I guess, the external public world, the MP world, the, the, the state, the, the um, institutional world can deal with. But more importantly, I need to understand for myself. So my attitude, if you like, with the young people we work with is you're going to get name calling, you're going to get isms. As, as, as Chris's story illustrates about the African, I want to say something about that in a minute. You're going to get isms everywhere. How do you, much do you know about yourself? I mean, you're a woman, Vera, how much sexism do you get in the House of Laws, but yet you're able to go and stand up and, and, and work with it. I mean, Chris, I was slightly disappointed to hear you say you didn't stand for inspector, but I can kind of understand why. But at the same time, there are lots of people who would not do things because they think, what's the point? I'm just going to get racially discriminated against. So there's a whole bunch of stuff that you've got to do, I think, from within. Um, I mean, to, to, to hear your story, Lloyd, about, I mean, I studied drama as well, to hear your story about, you know, Shakespeare and the rest of it, that people actually still think that that's so backward it's shocking to hear especially as the arts have been at the forefront of pushing back representation you can do so-called colorblind casting and all sorts they've been playing around that for a while i think chris, chris we have to learn most importantly and we're going to have some really uncomfortable conversations in time chris is your story about the african is really illustrative one about the complexities the contradictions and the paradoxes we're dealing with two the fact that when i grew up i'm now 49 50 this year when I grew up, we Caribbean people looked at Africans as backward, boo-boo men and all sorts of stuff we called them. And it wasn't until later that you start to think, oh yeah, I'm African and African is actually a place of, of, of um, pr prestige or a place of civilizations or a place of knowledge. That's when you start to adopt it, but there's still an attitude, even amongst Caribbean people, that, um, that Africans are backward and that's within the suit we live. So we've got racism against ourselves that needs dealing with. And I think that's... That's something also that Chris's story about the African also illustrates how transatlantic slavery was so popular and so possible and so deep and ingrained in the first place. So I think what now, definitely learning, more education, but learning as in something you do to yourself. Because like you said, Chris, also the family and the home, that's why one of our children was able to take a book into school because her, 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 um, her family had bought that book. And when I also say black, obviously black families education support group, I mean, black, this is how complex it gets because black isn't always black. We have white parents and families and carers involved in the group and they're the ones educating their black or mixed children about these things. So that's, so forgive me for, no, no, I'm glad I threw up the word, the complexes around black and white because, but at the same time, it's, it's okay to use them, but they're not as simple as we allow them to, to, to be something as simple as we think they are sometimes. And being prepared to, to, to listen to individual experiences. I, I remember I had a real wake up moment when about a year or so ago in a, uh, in a university setting, a young woman 
uh, asked me, uh, so Vera, you're a white woman in, uh, in Parliament. Um, what's your experience compared to somebody uh, who, who is black? And, you know, I was completely baffled because at that point, I'd only talked about me and a woman and discrimination, as you said, well, you know, that I just face, you know, sexist discrimination. And, I, you know, I was there, there, you know what, I don't know. I can't really tell you what it feels to be doubly discriminated. Um, we are still so so speechless or, or don't know what to say, actually, I think was an indication for me that, you know, how, how, how far away we can be from each other. That communication and understanding uh, of what it feels like to be under in un somebody else's skin, I think is, is a thing that we still have to learn uh, and, and haven't done enough of. Sean, I was just wondering whether you wanted to make a contribution about the insidious history, you know, the way you feel about yourself as a, can I say this again, <laughs> black community? Because I think, Chris, what you said is, is very much part of that, you know, the, feel, the feeling of yourself and your self-esteem. And I think, Rene, you, you were also talking about this sort of thing, how you, you're being persistently pushed back because there's a certain thing out there, a societal image of what it is to be of a different race and being white. So maybe just Sean and then uh, Rene, and then I might yeah, be opening up the question. Mm -hmm. Yeah, may yeah. I say something um, before we go? Okay. Racism is within every person. For instance, if you go down the road, you buy two doors, one black and one white, and you have a black kid, and you put these doors down, and you said to choose one, what do you think he's going to choose? He's not choosing a black dog. He's choosing a white dog. Do the same with a white white dog, a white kid, and he will do the same. He will choose a white dog. He wouldn't choose a black dog. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think that experiment, I mean, that's a very famous psychological kind of experiment, and it actually shows how, you know, racist representations and that lack of kind of self-love, etc. It does real psychological damage to black people as well as to white people. So the fact, right. that, the fact that the black child is choosing the white doll and actually see it, and the, the experiment goes further in terms of who's good and which one's the bad one. And that actually shows how racism becomes very mm. internalized and damaging as an individual. Um, there's a, you know, W.E.B. Du Bois, the American, mm -hmm. African-American, mm -hmm sociologist and activist, he had this notion that's called double consciousness, that when we are, you know, walking down the street, when we're, when we're experiencing the world, that we are seeing ourselves, not just in terms of who we are, but we're also seeing ourselves through the white gaze, through what, how we're being seen by the kind of the dominant white society. So we're living in this duality all of the time. And we can never just be one individual. We're always seeing ourselves through, you know, and it does very, yeah, heaps of psychological damage. Mm. And as um, Tony said, you know, the mental health statistics for black people, for African heritage people, you know, shockingly high in terms of the criminal justice system, in terms of, you know, excluded from education. I've seen firsthand how black children are treated very differently um, than white children in relation to the same kind of experiences and those kind of things, you know. So what I think when things, uh, yeah, when forms of representation, how people are treated, uh, conversations you overhear, all of these things are, can be just very 
you know, subliminal on the surface, but they seep in and you take notice of them and it really does kind of affect you. You know, I had those same experiences. You know, I went to Culver Hay School, an all-boys school in Bath, incredibly kind of tough environment. Um, and yeah, you know, that there the racism was very overt and very covert, but also, but always kind of, most, I'd say nine times out of 10, unchallenged by the authority in that space. And that has a very real effect on you, really, growing mm. up. Uh, so, Rene, I saw that's you That's what not. Tony was saying. That's what Tony yeah. was saying. Yeah. Rene, do you want to add to this? Um, only slightly. I think it. I think that it's really difficult to overstate the impact of um, white supremacy. I was saying quotation marks, but just the 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 pervasive culture and how that impacts on your perception of yourself. And that is why I think that what Rob was saying comes in about learning is actually even as an adult now I'm constantly trying to educate myself about my history I'm mixed race um, about both sides of that and how those those fit together um, and I think that before we can solve a problem we need to understand where it comes from um, and racism is such a huge a huge thing um, and in, in the West, it's built on the ideal of whiteness being the epitome. Um, and so there's, there's all of that built in. There's the aspirations that people will have to whiteness and what that looks like. There is the perception that, we, that Chris was talking about, about the dolls. I've got a daughter and she's mixed race as well. And I really try to make sure that she sees representations of herself, of, of girls and women that are black and brown, as well as white and that she has a black dolls and white dolls and she plays with them equally because to break down that feeling which is which kind of children just grow up with because it's all around you it's constantly being fed into you by the media we need to actively put new messages out there we need to actively decide i need to decide as a mother i'm not going to let her only play with white dolls i'm not going to let her only watch tv shows with white girls as the heroes and and whatever she needs to we need to make those things actively happen that's the thing that we can do next is change our behaviors because we're aware that it's a problem um mm. and as adults as well then there's learning about it so we understand why these things why these structures are here already and so maybe how we can start to dismantle them i've got the questions shall i go ahead i've got lots of questions we've got, oh, you've got lots of okay. <clears throat> we haven't got much time but we've got lots of questions okay um, then off you go <laughs> one from Janielle. Hi there. What advice would you give to students uh, who would like to call on their schools to provide a more diverse and inclusive curriculum and also, uh, more importantly, establish anti-racist policies within their community? Whereas the educationists? That's a very quick comment on this, but yeah, Rob and Alex may have a view as well on this one. Um, there has been a tendency recently within schools and also universities to be doing consultation with their students. You know, what would you like to see in the curriculum? Um, you know, asking parents to come in and, and you know, and I think, I think it's a very challenging area because you're putting an onus on children when actually with curriculum reviews, curriculum rewrites, they are areas that need to be invested in properly. I think it's important that schools invest in their curriculum 
refreshes, rewrites very importantly. You know, they, they, they should invest in it. They should be funding it, going through inset days, etc. And I think the onus has to be on the school leadership to do that responsibly. But I've seen lots of cases where children are being asked to contribute those things and it's, it's not their job to do. So I think there's a bit of ethics exploitation, how I say that word is a strong word, but I think we have to be careful. Does anybody else want to? Oh yeah, I mean, basically, so schools don't have enough governance over this issue at the moment. Um, Ofsted, um, you know, in itself has a lot of work to be done around ensuring it's representing society and understands the importance of tackling racism and the, the laws change now so they don't have to you know they don't have to report to the local authority what incidents are occurring uh, and what they're doing so there's a lot of onus on schools to take that responsibility on themselves and also more and more of you know their academies so they're their own separate businesses um, what schools need to be doing though is they, is they do need to be um, having a zero tolerance approach, they do need to be anti and not just non, they do need to be recording and rep reporting everything. It is good practice to report to the local authority to work in partnership. And to me, the, you know, the best schools are the schools that actually, you know, declare and say we do have an issue because what school doesn't, you know, what school doesn't in our, in our current day society, but it's the schools that are saying that we haven't got a problem and who aren't reporting and who aren't working in partnership that are the ones we need to be calling out and, and, and all basically um, any of us who can, we need to be challenging schools that haven't got the right policies, procedures, commitment and aren't doing the right thing when incidents occur. Yeah, I think that there have been policies for decades, haven't there? I mean, we, we just haven't followed them and the, or the, the recommendations of the things. Also, likewise, re-education resources for schools. A lot of them don't even have policies now, Rob. If you ask them to get out their racial incident policy, if, if, it's, if it's there, it's got dust on it from about 15 years ago. Yeah, yeah. A lot of them don't even have the policies because they're not even checked for that anymore. And I've seen we've got some senior educationalists in the audience, so hopefully you'll, you'd be up for people continuing that conversation with you uh, offline. Uh, another question from Polly. There's a... There's a, a recognition at Bath Abbey of the urgent need to learn from its past, including the fact that it has a high number of memorials to people involved in slavery. Can the panel recommend the first steps we should take to address the past and combat current and future racism? As uh, Tony Swarby powerfully said, clean the wound so that it can heal. I don't want to always be the first one to answer. I'm only jumping in here because it's something that I've actually been working on. And I gave a talk on Monday about this very thing as well. Yeah, Bath Abbey's actually got the most amount of monuments to, to as slavers of any other place of worship in the country. Start, there's a conversation that just started happening actually about this with, I think it's the rector from Bath Abbey. Um, and my, my take on it is that actually those, those, you know, those memorials shouldn't be removed. You know, Church of England was complicit in the slave trade itself. Um, Queen Elizabeth, um, and I feel that those memorial that in Bath Abbey itself needs to be a, a permanent, you know, other thing put in there that tells that story. That is the part of the narrative when you're having a tour guide around that space, and it shouldn't be something that's kind of not talked about. I think it's important that it's recontextualized or contextualized even in Bath Abbey and other places of worship to talk about that history that the church had with the transatlantic slave trade. So yeah, I, I think it's transparency and talking about it rather than not talking about it and hiding it away. 
Sure. Well, can I just go um, in there? So that would be, for example, something that I'd like to facilitate. So I worship at Bath Abbey. I know the, the Abbey community well. Um, so, you know, I, I, I try to maybe create some links to have a grown-up discussion about how we can do that. Uh, and, and one of the things that has really worried me is when people have said, oh, you know, if you're doing these sort of things, then, uh, you know, we are wiping out our history, our country's history. And I say, no, no, we are going to widen it. We need to include, it's, it's, it's got to be wider and bigger. It's not, it's not about making it smaller, it's about making it bigger. So I, I hope, um, you know, we can, in, in that spirit, uh, we can start that conversation and I'm happy to do that. Sorry, yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right about is broadening, it's not taking away anything, is about broadening the history. And I have to say here, that's the same about, you know, black history in the curriculum, that having a broader curriculum or a broader sense of history when you go to a stately home or an abbey, that's to the benefit of all visitors, regardless yeah. of what ethnicity you are. You know, so I have heard cases recently, I'm not going to say the school, but I've heard instances where black children are being taken out of the class and being taught separately because they were the only two black children in their school and they're being taught separately about black history rather than it becoming about the whole school. And to me, that's completely counterproductive and does actually more damage than it does good. You know, so yeah, when we are talking about whether it's decolonizing the curriculum or adding narratives into heritage, that's to the benefit of everybody. To, to have a fuller sense of history. I mean, I, I find this fascinating. So if, if I, I'm happy to keep going a bit. Okay. It's really up to our panelists. Uh, well, if people are happy to keep going, I'll, 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 uh, I'll, I'll keep going. Uh, how, confident, how confident are we that the police and authorities have a clear view of the potentially violent far right in Bristol and Bath? Alex, did you want to, you waving your hand? So are you talking about, um, you're talking about, was that the police and the local authorities? They said. How, com how confident are we that the police and yeah, authorities have a clear view of the potentially violent far right in Bristol? Yeah, I, I, to be honest, I think we're quite for fortunate there. I mean, we've got a constabulary that does, um, ha does actually do a lot to tackle um, racist incidents and hate crime. And that does have some insight into its own the work it needs to do for itself. Similarly, with um, Bain's local authority, don't get me wrong, you know, that they're institutions, and to me, all of our large public bodies and institutions do have to grapple with institutional racism. Uh, um, that's a fact. But, and I think, but I think both with Bain's and with Haven and Somerset and Stabby, there's a recognition. We've got some very committed individuals, some very committed people um, that makes a difference. There, we're, we're monitoring, so jointly with the police um, and Baines, there's a lot of work going on to monitor what's going on in terms of far-right activity incidents, critical incidents, the impact of global events. Um, and all, and different, different areas, different departments, you know, uh, are different. But Baines, you know, there's quite a lot going on around, for example, in, ours, in the children's services and social services, there's a lot of dedicated work going on to try and make sure that social workers are really trained and look and, and recognize issues as well because of course they're great eyes and ears um, but you know I'm not saying there aren't th there, there aren't some blind spots but I think we're quite lucky in our local area. I have to say Rob you've got a lot of fans here <laughs> um, but I'll go for one last uh, question um, if uh, when Vera hosts another webinar on this topic in a year's time what progress on tackling racism would you want to see locally in our community in our public sector organizations and businesses i mean that alex is it is it 
more reporting or is it less incidents? Uh, any of the others? Want yeah, to I mean, yes. I mean, I, I think it's not, I think my colleagues should speak about that because racism is such a huge, a huge beast. Um, and I obviously come at it from the racial incidents, the far end, the, the front line of it all. Um, so from my point of view, yeah, from Sari's point of view, we want to see zero tolerance. I'm really sad to hear what happened with Renee. We need to see zero tolerance. That sort of remark should, you know, it's not acceptable during any organisation in current day UK. It is unacceptable. And we need to see every organisation um, seeing um, uh, having zero tolerance to any form of incident or micro microaggression. These things need to stop. And that's what I would see as progress is where it's called out more and more and more with swift responses, not necessarily punishment, but swift responses to show it's absolutely unacceptable. That's what I want to see. But I know my colleagues um, will have some really good points around racism from the bigger angle lens. Uh, maybe uh, Lloyd, I'm conscious you haven't had much opportunity, but you talked about being vulnerable, feeling vulnerable in the last few weeks. What, what would improvement in 12 months time look like for you? I think that I, I can't help thinking, and it seems almost like a far-fetched thing, but South Africa, when they had all those reconciliation trials where people were actually able to say exactly how they felt, their own experience of being racist, and why they did it, and, and how they were going to progress in the future. And I know that might seem almost dramatic, but I, I want more open discussion in a safe place for the future of my children and and everyone else. Tony? I, I agree because I think until it is acknowledged about the past then how on earth are we going to move forward? How are we going to move forward and make things better for those who are coming up behind us if there isn't any acknowledgement of the past no matter how bad it appears or so forth, we need to be able to look at that, dissect that, pick it apart and actually identify those areas in order to make sure that those things are not something that we carry on. <coughs> because I think unless there is an open and transparent approach to this by way of honesty and so forth, then how on earth are we going to like move forward? How can we then enable our children to have that, those knowledge and skills and that understanding with them to ensure that they then develop into people who do not then um, have a lack of self-confidence or a lack of self-esteem. We want all children, whether they are black, white or so forth, to be able to be confident in asking those questions, to put in their hand up to say, well, why is this? That's what we need to be having because it's only through those changes and acknowledging the history. History is history. We cannot pick and choose the bits that we want. We can't say, oh yeah, well, we're happy to identifying Usain Bolt as the fastest man on the, in the world, but we're not going to pick these other bits. We're not going to talk about the, the horrors of slavery, you know, the history of being hung in trees and actually people going to pick, you know, take pictures. That was an event and that didn't happen that long ago. You know, there needs to be an acknowledgement around the inconsistencies around the criminal justice system, within education, within social services, all of those things there needs to be an acknowledgement and actually it's only through that change go forward um, I, I was just thank you I was going to say regard to I think we should have a conversation in a year's time but also have a conversation continuing for a year I mean because like I said I mean we made a film that was the film Under Bridge also Sean directed so we made that film 20 years ago it's only just become topical so that'll give you an idea of how this 
this topic, this how this conversation has developed. We're talking about centuries of ingrained, embedded stuff that we don't even see or understand. We need to listen, I think, as well, like you, you said, Vera. I think the, the two things that came up from, I've just seen, looking at WhatsApp, we're just tapping into WhatsApp groups, who, some people who are on this chat. Two things locally in Bath also need to be looked at is what support um, has there been for the black curriculum or the ideas of black history and a diverse curriculum, very important in education. And obviously schools are much more on their own with the academization, but there's lots, I think, that the, the local authority, but also we wonder what an MP can do in that respect to push from the top um, to support. I mean, to at least look into and explore, uh, don't necessarily jump on the first link because it could get you in trouble, but actually to actually get some in-depth look at these areas and look what's been proposed and work with communities to see how such things, the so-called black curriculum implemented. And there's another one which actually Matt may read out, I'm not sure, which is about teachers. And it actually amounts to about the same thing as far as Bath is concerned. Um, as one of our kids have pointed out, if you're the only black teacher in the school, like Sean had pointed out, if you're the only black child in the school, then you get lumbered with all the expectations around race equality and bringing everything, making all change. And that has to stop. So, because people, the thing is the teacher will want to probably do something because they, like I said before, people don't, people do this stuff voluntarily a lot of the time. Some of us get paid. Um, but the sense of purpose often kind of gets in the way. So people get burnt out. So there needs to be more networking and collaboration, working with the community, working with existing black teachers, as well as recruiting new ones, et cetera. I think that kind of support. And the dialogue should be ongoing because obviously a lot of us are going to feel it's in the headlines, of course, you know, MPs, a political position, you know, I know it isn't this case for you, but I need to put it on the table, I'm afraid, you know, that uh, this is just, this is just trendy at the moment. So what, what, what happens when something else comes on the news agenda? So I think that sense of dialogue and being listened to, because like Tony says, there's a big change. One of the things Tony says about, you know, and she isn't the only one, I was speaking to a white friend of mine the other day, if I may use that word, Vera, um, who was saying she went to Colston School in Bristol and every time her mum had given, once again, family, family learning, her mum had given her a book about Colston and she, she's, a, she's, a, in my, but she's in her 50s now, but whenever she brought it up at school, she never got the, the, the right answer or never got any response from it. And like Tony was saying that what she got, and you know, people get sidelined, but now there is more of a willingness. So I think as a city from MP, It'd be good to know what an MP can do at some point, Vera, in terms of what you're, what's in your gift. But sit council, so working as a community, working with the existing communities to actually see what, can, what offer Bath can develop for itself. And the one other point I would just add is that, I mean, there, the, the position of looking at Bath specific, the community is quite unique. So even that notion of mixed race, once again, different lang difficult language, um, is a unique position. So let's look and engage and keep this dialogue going with the communities in Bath and to see what their experience has been and where we can go forward from there. But that sense of acknowledgement and listening to feel like it's ongoing is, is going to be really important. You're listening to Imperial Voice. This is a special double-length episode of In Our City. Tozin and I are listening to and discussing a special Black Lives in Bath discussion hosted by our MP, Vera Hophaus. Yeah, I, I, I mean, um, I think the best thing... I can offer certainly for my community in Bath is to have more of this, to have um, more of these conversations. And um, uh, I mean, I, I, if I may mention that, but you know, two, two years ago, you know, I, I would have liked to have that conversation going with young people as well um, and uh, have offered that maybe we should have that conversation going into schools particularly. 
and uh, uh, it wasn't taken up. And I think I can renew that effort that I think we need to do a lot more in schools um, and, and have that conversation um, uh, in, in schools across Bath and, and that it is a conversation that we have openly without people feeling threatened or, you know, you know it, it becoming a, a sort of defensive thing. Uh, to be quite honest, you know, I, I just probably don't know enough um, and, you know, white people uh, probably don't know enough and we, sh you know, we should feel that we too can be in a, in a safe space to say, you know what, I'm, I'm pretty ignorant and I'm, I'm sorry about that, but you need, you need to tell me you know, where this should go. Um, so I expect some sort of leadership as well from, from you guys to say, look, this is, I, I think, where we think it needs to go. I'm, I'm, happy, to, I'm happy to be part of that. And, uh, 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 and really opening the discussions to, uh, to, to other groups and just, just us here um, and make sure that we widen it. Um, and and as, I, as I said before, I was surprised how many angry letters I got. And, and, and people are you know, very defensive about the whole thing. And that's, I think, is bad. Um, we, we, we need to all feel that we need to have to reach out to each other. If I can be a part of that, you know, absolutely. I, I think it's important that we keep, keep this whole thing, um, the flame alive, and that it doesn't just go away because there was um, some Black, March, uh, Black Lives Matter marches and, and then we very quickly forget about it again. I think the important thing now is to make something of this and keep the m momentum going. Uh, and I need you as much for that um, um, as you possibly need me. So I look at it as teamwork. I think we are coming... Um, to the end of t tonight's discussion, um, I, I want to thank everybody for coming for our, to our panelists, especially to be so so open and um, and, and talk about some very raw um, and personal things um, for everybody who's been listening. Um, this is very much a, a beginning of a conversation, and this is not the only conversation that we are having. I just thought I just want to give over to Olivia because she has worked to make this happen. Olivia works in my office. She she, she is so passionate about this issue. I want to give her a voice tonight and say a very, very big thank you for putting that together. Uh, and uh, Olivia, the last word goes to you. I just want to say an incredible thank you to everyone because everyone, all the panelists know and some other people on the call, we put this together in a very short time period. And everyone was incredibly open, supportive, patient with me and I've had many, many conversations and I feel this is something I, I grew up with in America. I'm a 59 year old woman and the first thing I ever learned about was the civil rights movement. So I, this has touched my heart deeply and I just wanna say I'm so excited and so heartened and I feel as Vera said, I mean, this is one stepping stone on a journey but I'm, I'm very optimistic that together in Bath, and, and thanks to, to our panelists and other groups, you know, Vera, our team, we have forged new relationships with new organizations, some we certainly knew about and might have had some contact with, but that contact has deepened. So please know that Vera and myself, you know, we are there to listen, to support, to help others do their events, and um, I just want to say a huge thank you to everyone who's, who's been so generous with their time, 
and sharing such personal stories. I've been touched deeply over the past two weeks. So thank you, everyone. Thank you to everybody. Um, thank you for your time. This is just the beginning. Uh, and I'm, I'm excited and hopefully we're getting, we're getting somewhere. In small st steps, let's, let's, let's face it, um, we won't do something that you've tried for such a long time to change it uh, you know, in a year. But hopefully, in a year's time, we've made some progress, but we will also meet again long before in a year's time. So thank you again. Thank you, everybody, for joining. Have a very good evening. Wow, well, that was moving, wasn't it? Yeah, it was very, very moving. And I hope that it will be the beginning of more dialogue. And hopefully from that move to actual um, implementation of real policies, real attitudes in the workplace that make people realise and look at each other as so much more than stereotypes. Well, I guess that's the, the missing question, isn't it? What next? I mean, I didn't hear anything about any resources being committed to this. It would be lovely to have like a project officer for a year or something, but that's not in Vera's gift. She doesn't have budget for that. It would be lovely to think about sort of countermeasures and how, I mean, with the specific examples that we heard, what, what, what sort of countermeasure would be appropriate? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I would love to see um, a statue of um, Henry Beckford, I think that was yeah. his name. Um, yes. I would like to, love to see something like that at um, Beckford Towers. Yeah, statue uh, of his Imperial Majesty. Yes, yes, um, of, of his Imperial Majesty um, around Bath. Outside the Abbey, yeah. Yes, outside the Abbey, so that yep. becomes part of the story. So yeah. it's not cultural, it's not a solid, but it, it is part of the real story. And then I think that's a problem with a lot of um, history, the way it is perceived as if, we, we black people here are just sort of slight footnotes. And what we need is to become woven into the whole story. We need to be part of the whole story, not just sort of throw away one-liners. And by the way, there was a, this black emperor that lived in Bath. No, you come into Bath, you go into the center of town and there should be two or three statues of him around to remind people that he was very much a part of this community for a while, and that black people live in Bath. I get, every time I go into Bath, I still get asked by people, um, you know, how, uh, where do I come from? Am I here on a day trip? Um, you know, do I, I mean, they're being nice, but there is that assumption that I must be a visitor. I completely understand why regular microaggressions would make you feel angry and hurt. But I think the question we're gonna press is, how do we put that collective anger and hurt to constructive effect? I mean, should we be saving the Rastafari Center in Bristol, which the council are about to try and sell? Should we be raising subscriptions for the statue of Haile Selassie? Should we be rescuing Fairfield House and, and, and the legacy? I mean, I think we have to take that righteous energy and point it constructively in the right direction at the right place. And we're still understanding the problem, aren't we? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, this has been In Our City. We've been listening to a Black Lives in Bath conversation uh, hosted by our MP Vera Hobhaus. It's goodbye from me. I'm William Heath. And I'm Uluato Siwamileri. Thank you. Stay tuned to Imperial Voice. Mm -hmm.
of His Imperial Majesty, Haile Selassie. Selassie? Oh, you mean Selassie? Look, you mean Emperor Haile Selassie I the first. Don't act as if you're talking about your gardener. See? I don't hear you calling King James. Oh, James? Or Queen Elizabeth Lizzie. See, yeah, man, respect it. Show the fullness. We're talking about the most high. So when we speak of that, we speak of the power. We draw on the power of the word. You know what I'm saying? So if you now feel it, don't say it. It's just like that. <laughs>
be so them they do them they overdo all the things that them they do be so them they do them they do them they overdo all the things that them they do be so be so them they do them they think is that they better pass them brother no be so be so be so them they do them they think is that they better pass them brother no be so be so the thing with black no good now foreign test them they like it no be so be so the thing with black no good now foreign test them they like it no be so be so them go turn your condition and close them country away no be so be so them go turn your condition and close them country away no be so be so them judge him go kaki week and jail him brother away no be so be so them judge him go put in week and jail him brother away no be so be so them go proud of them name and put them slave name for heading no be so be so them go proud of them name and put them slave name for heading no be so be so color mentality now make you hear me now it's a ransom it make you hear it's a williams it make you hear it's a alia it make you hear it's a mohammed it make you hear it's a anglican it make you hear it's a bishop it make you hear it's a catholic it make you hear it's a muslim it make you hear Now Africa we devil make you hear. Now Africa we devil make you hear. Color mentality, yeah. Color mentality, yeah. It's a ransom we make you hear. It's a ransom we make you hear. Now Africa we devil make you hear. Now Africa we devil make you hear. Color mentality, yeah. Color mentality, yeah.
think I heard him say, Boom Shaka. Every day you're wondering, wondering what can you do? Every day you're what can you do? Then you hear you wouldn't even try to reach the top. Then you'll be free. You wouldn't even try to reach the top. Then you will see every day. Thank you. 